Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 20. Someone asked me if I was going to do the Ten Commandments in the order that they're given in this chapter. I said, well, why? And he said, because I was trying to decide which ones to skip. Well, just so you know, we're going to do them in order, because I think there's significance to the order. First four commandments deal with our relationship with God. You're to have no other gods besides me. You're not to make a graven image. You're not to take the name of the Lord in vain. You're to keep the Sabbath day. And then the last six have to do with our relationship with man. Honor your father and mother. You're not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to lie, not to covet. In fact, it's probable since there were two tablets that on the first tablet were the first four commandments and on the other tablet were the last six. In fact, if you count the words, there are more words in the first four commandments than there are in the last six. So the first commandment has to do with our vertical relationship with God. The other tablet has to do with our horizontal relationship with man. And that would be fitting because in the New Testament, the law is summed up this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the law deals with my relationship Godward and manward. I think sometimes we think about the Ten Commandments and we just view them as a list of do's and don'ts, a list of thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And we often think they're just as cold and hard as the stones they were written on. But on closer inspection, you will find that in the Ten Commandments, God really gives us the motive for keeping them. And that's at the end of the commandment we're going to look at today, the second commandment. If you look at verse 6, it says, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. See that word love in there? God doesn't want us to keep the commandments because we have to. He wants us to keep them because we want to. He wants them to be written on our hearts. Jesus said the same thing in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Paul summed it up this way in Galatians 5, 14. He said, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And what is the one word? It's the word in verse 6. It's the word love. How does love fulfill the whole law? Well, if you love God, you won't have other gods before Him. If you love God, you won't make graven images. If you love God, you're not going to take His name in vain. And if you love other people, you're not going to steal from them and lie to them and kill them and covet what they have. I love the way Augustine put it. He said, love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. Because if you really love God, you will do as He pleases. Now this morning we're going to look at this second commandment. We see it in verses 4 to 6. Notice how it begins in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol 
or a graven image or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. The second commandment is that you are not to make or worship or serve an idol or an image. And I think most people in America today would say they don't have a problem with that. See, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a Buddha in my bedroom. I don't have a totem pole in my living room. I'm not into idolatry. What I would tell you this morning is that I think idolatry is more prevalent in America than it has ever been. Some people park their idols in their garage. Some people dock their idols at the marina. Some people put their idols in their safe deposit box. The shrine you find in a lot of homes is a 42-inch box that you plug in the wall called a TV. Or a 22-inch screen attached to a computer. And when we turn it on, we worship our idols. Not so much objects as images. Images of success. Images of wealth. Images of status. Images of sensuality. America is given over to idolatry. You say, well, Dan, what's the difference between the first and the second commandments? I think the distinction is this. The first commandment deals with the who of worship. You're to have no gods beside me. It's to be me alone. God says I'm to be number one. It's the who of worship. The second commandment is the how of worship. No idol. No image. No likeness. There is no material thing that can represent or designate God. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 25, God asked this question, To whom will you liken me? And the answer is no one and nothing. We can say that a man looks like another man. We can say a chair looks like another chair. We can say that piano looks like another piano. But there is only one God. And you cannot compare Him with anyone. And when you attempt to do so, it's idolatry. Now let me add a footnote here. This commandment that says we're not to make a graven image is not condemning religious art. The Bible confirms art. In the tabernacle, they had the mercy seat. You remember what was on top of it? Two gold cherubim. Two gold angels. And there was a gold lampstand with golden branches and blossoms and bulbs and flowers. When Solomon built the tabernacle, or the temple, there were images inside of pomegranates and palm trees and lilies, and there were sculptures of oxen and sculptures of lions. So this commandment is not against art. It's against idolatry. John Calvin, the great reformer, wrote, Sculpture and painting are gifts of God. If art is your master, then you are an idolater. If art is your servant, 
it becomes ministry. God is the author of beauty, but he hates idolatry. And that's the point of this second commandment. God does not want us to have any image to assist us in our worship. A person who truly knows God, a person who has a relationship with God, doesn't need an image or a representation to help him pray. Now, that's not to say it's wrong to have a picture or a painting of Jesus. It's probably not accurate. But it's not wrong. What is wrong is the belief that you need a picture, or you need a painting, or you need a sculpture, or you need something to help you worship. That is idolatry. Now, because I believe idolatry is so rampant in our country today, I want us to get this today. So, I'm trying to make it simple and applicable, so I'm going to ask you four questions this morning. Four simple questions. Number one, how could you? How could you? Idolatry is such an absurd thing to think that I would make an image, make an idol, and then bow down and worship that idol. How could a person ever do that? We know we don't have to look very far for the answer. Because while Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the children of Israel broke the second commandment. They came to Aaron and said, make us an idol. And so he took their gold jewelry and their gold earrings and he melted them down and he made a golden calf. And they bowed down to that golden calf and said, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. That's always puzzled me. How could they experience the plagues in Egypt? And how could they walk through the Red Sea on dry ground? How could they follow that pillar of fire by night? How could they go out every day and gather manna that fell down from heaven? And then turn their back on God. How did they do it? I'm not going to turn there, but you can read it later. Exodus 32 describes this incident. It's a familiar one. But I think it gives us two insights into why they did it. Number one, idolatry was already happening in their hearts. Before they ever made the golden calf, they were already practicing idolatry in their hearts. And if you read chapter 32 and verse 1, it says, when Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Now, Moses went up on the mountain and it says he was there for 40 days. He was gone for over a month. And when he didn't come back, they came to Aaron and they panicked. Why did they panic? Because they were too dependent on a man. And that man went up on the mountain and didn't come back. And when they said, we don't know where Moses is. So we want you to make us an idol who will go before us. What's that mean? We want something tangible we can see that will lead us. It was Moses before. We don't know where he is. Now we need a golden calf that will go before us so we can follow it. We need something tangible, an image that we can see. So I would suggest to you that idol number one was Moses. Idol number two was the golden calf. 
And then the second thing we learn from their experience is rather shocking. And that is they rationalize their actions because in verse 5 of that chapter, Aaron made the golden calf and then he built an altar in front of it so that they could worship. And he said this, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Tomorrow is a feast to who? To the Lord. You see, if you'd ask them if they were committing idolatry, they would say no. We made this golden calf to help us worship the Lord. What were they doing? They were rationalizing their idolatry. This is just helping us worship better. So when I ask you, how could you? You may not be the best one to answer that question. Because idolatry grows in your heart, and by the time it comes out, you may not even notice it. And you may be rationalizing your idolatry into, well, I'm just doing this to worship the Lord. So it might be wise to give full license to those around you and say, do you see idolatry in my life? Am I rationalizing things that I'm doing in my life that are actually offensive to God because they're idolatry? Second question, why do you? Why do you do idolatry? Why why do people involve themselves in idolatry? What is the motive? Well, I've written down three. You could probably add some to these, but let me describe these to you. Why do people make an image? Number one, it's an attempt to isolate God. An attempt to isolate. If I can put God in a statue, or I can have him stay in a building somewhere, then I can find him whenever I need him. Israel thought this way. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, they went into battle. The Bible tells us their hearts were far from God. They went into battle against the Philistines and they lost. And so they came back in defeat and thought, we need a new strategy. And somebody raised his hand and said, maybe we need God with us. Good idea. So what did they do? They went and got the ark, not the big boat, the little ark. So well, God hangs around the ark. So we'll go get the ark, and if we take the ark into battle, God will have to come and we'll win. So they took the ark into battle, and guess what? They were annihilated. 30,000 men were killed. The high priest was killed. His two sons were killed. They lost the ark to the Philistines. They came home. And the Bible tells us for 20 years they wasted their lives. Until Samuel came to them. And he said, if you want God in your midst, get rid of your idols. And repent and get your heart right with him and put him first. And he'll show up. They learned a lesson they had to learn many times over. And that is you can't put God in a convenient location. He dwells with those who are humble and contrite in heart. And yet people continually try to do that. Put God in a safe place. Let's put Him in a box and let's leave Him there. That way we can find Him easily and guess what? We can get away from Him easily.
Some people have the idea that they can isolate God to a church building. So you come here on Sunday, you meet with God, you have a fuzzy feeling. When that's over with, you leave and you think, I just left God at church. I don't want him going everywhere with me. I left him in the building. And I'll maybe come back next week or the next couple weeks and experience that again. But meanwhile, God, you stay in the building. What is that? Idolatry. Why? Because we like to isolate God. Restrict him to a location. Second reason. It's an attempt to reduce God. People love to whittle God down. Because if you whittle him down, he's more convenient. He's more manageable. Whenever I hear a person start a sentence with these words, well, my idea of God is, I immediately know that what I'm about to hear is idolatry. See, I really don't care what your idea of God is. The only one who can tell me who God is is God himself. So when I say my idea of God is, it tells me you're going to whittle him down to somebody you're comfortable with. Because it's a lot easier to change my image of God than to change me. I've watched a lot of people over the years and a lot of people will change their theology because they don't want to change their lifestyle. They have meology instead of theology. People say, well, I don't think God cares about gay marriage. I don't think he's concerned about immorality. As long as two people love each other, that's all that matters. What are we doing? We're reducing God. We're making God like us. And God calls that idolatry. We have reversed Genesis 1.26. The verse with God speaking says, let us make man in our image. What have we done? We have made God in our image. heard about a little girl who was drawing a picture in Sunday school, and the teacher said, what are you drawing? She said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, well, no one knows what God looks like. And she said, they will when I get done. <laughs> a lot of adults are drawing our picture of God. And we're drawing a God who fits comfortably in our lives. And that is idolatry. We want him in small, pre-measured doses. We want him small enough that we can manage him. We want him small enough that he will justify my lifestyle. And God says that's idolatry. Third reason we create images is that it's an attempt to control God. A lot of people want a God they can manipulate. Heard about a little boy who wanted a bicycle, and his mother said, well, why don't you pray about it? So he decided he was going to write a letter to Jesus. He started out, dear Jesus, I need a new bicycle, and I've been perfect for the last year. He stopped, so that's not true, so he crumpled it up and threw it away, started over. 
Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy most of the time. Knew that wasn't true. Crumpled it up, threw it away. Started over again. Dear Jesus, I want to be good all of the time. That's not really true either, so he crumpled it up, threw it away. He went out in the front yard, got a statue of Mary, wrapped her up in a towel, and threw her under the bed. He wrote, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. (laughs) I'm afraid a lot of adults do that in adult ways because we want to manipulate God. God says you shall not make or worship or serve an image. Whether it's a molten image in your living room or whether it's a fabricated image in your heart. Third question. Why not? What's the big deal about idolatry? Why does God get so upset about idols and images? Look in chapter 20 at verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God loves you, and He's jealous. Ladies, suppose you walk into your living room and your husband is there on, a ca- on the couch with another woman in his arms. He sees you out of the corner of his eyes and he says, wait a minute, honey, don't get the wrong idea. Uh, let me explain what's going on here. Th- this woman is so beautiful that she reminds me of you. So as I'm embracing her, I'm thinking of you. Do you buy that, ladies? (laughs) Well, God doesn't buy it either. When you say, I'm embracing this, but it's helping me worship you, God doesn't buy it. God is a jealous God. Now, jealousy is sometimes an ugly attribute. It's the second cousin of envy. But whenever God is jealous, it's always right. One athlete doesn't have a right to be jealous of another athlete because he doesn't have a monopoly on athletics. One singer doesn't have a right to be jealous of another singer because she doesn't have a monopoly on singing. But let me tell you something. God has a monopoly on being God. As someone has said, His throne is not a duplex. He wants all of your worship. He deserves all of your worship. And he will not share it with anyone else or anything else. This is a big issue to God. And that's why the first two commandments deal with this very subject of idolatry. In fact, you could argue that idolatry is the greatest sin of all. 
because it breaks the greatest commandment of all. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Idolatry is a renunciation of our highest purpose in life, which is to glorify God. Man is incurably religious. We were made to worship God. And when we stop worshiping God, guess what? We don't stop worshiping. We just worship something else or someone else. And that's idolatry. I've talked about how it hurts God. Let me talk about it, how it hurts you. I'll give you five concepts that are in your bulletin about the way idolatry hurts you. Number one, idols will disappoint you. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 14 says, Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful. They're deceitful. They always promise more than they can deliver. you listen to your TV, it says, wear our label and you'll be popular. Buy our product and you'll be successful. Drink our beer and it doesn't get any better than this. Try our toothpaste and you'll have sex appeal. They always promise what they cannot deliver. Idols will disappoint you. Second, idols will dominate you. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12 too. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. You were influenced and led astray to idols. Idols may start out letting you control them, but they will end up controlling you. Whatever you love more than God will dominate you. One of the most common words used in our English language today is the word addicted. People are addicted to work, addicted to sex, addicted to sports, addicted to gambling, addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs. We have a society of addicts Because idols reign in our country, and idols will dominate you. Third, idols will deform you. Psalm 115.4 says, Their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. Those who make them will be like them. Did you get that? Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. God says in Jeremiah 2.5, They went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. Let me give you a principle that you need to understand. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. If you worship money, you will become more materialistic. 
If you worship pornography, you will become more perverted. If you worship yourself, you will become more selfish. And if you worship Jesus Christ, you will become more like Him. You become like what you value most. You become like whatever is first in your life. And that's why idols will deform you. You start out molding the idol, and the idol ends up molding you. Fourth, idols will destroy you. One of the most discouraging stories in the Bible is the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus told him to sell everything he has and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Now that's the only person Jesus ever told that to. Why did he tell it to this young man? Well, I think it's because Jesus knew that his idol was his bank account. And Jesus was saying, you need to put your idol aside so that you can come and embrace me and follow me. And the story ends this way. It says of the young man, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. His idol not only disappointed him and dominated him and deformed him, it destroyed him because it kept him from Jesus Christ. In Indiana Jones, in the Last Crusade, they finally find the Holy Grail. This lady has it in her hand, and there's an earthquake, and she drops it, and it falls through the crevice, and she falls through the crevice, and Indiana Jones heroically grabs her, and she sees the Holy Grail off to the side, and she starts reaching for it. And he's losing his grip, and he says, give me your other hand. I'm dropping you. Give me your other hand. I'm dropping you. And she reaches out for the wrong thing, and she loses her life. That's what idols do. They leave you reaching out to your destruction. Fifth. Idols will duplicate you. Duplicate you. You say, what do you mean by that? Look in our passage at verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. What's he saying? Idolatry doesn't just have a negative impact on you. It has an impact on your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. There's an illustration of this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. I won't have you look there, but you can read it on your own. I love reading about the kings because you read through little capsules of their lives and you see the impact that generation has on generation. Lessons learned and lessons never learned. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we're introduced to a king by the name of Uzziah. He was a godly king. It says he did right in the sight of the Lord. It says something interesting about him. It says, 
He was greatly blessed until he became strong, and when he became strong, he got proud. Anybody testify to that? He was saying, God's blessed me until he became strong, and then he said, you know what? I've had quite a life. I've made something of myself. And when he became proud, he got himself in trouble. And he decided he was going to go into the temple and offer incense in the temple. Eighty priests stood at the gate and said, don't come in, you're the king, you're not supposed to do this. But he was too proud. He said, I can do what I want to do. And he walked into the temple and he burned incense in the temple. And as he was burning the incense, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And he was a leper until the day that he died. Lived outside of Jerusalem in a little hut, separate from everyone. Well, he had a son. We read about him in chapter 27. His name was Jotham. He became king. Interestingly, it says he did right in the sight of the Lord, but it makes an interesting comment about him. It says he never went to the temple. He didn't even go to worship properly at the temple. He just didn't go. My dad went there one day and got leprosy. I'm not going back. So you got the dad out of pride having false worship, and then his son has neglected worship. Then he has a son. Read about him in the next chapter. His name was Ahaz. He didn't do right in the sight of the Lord. He worshiped the Baals, the false gods. And he actually went to the temple and nailed the doors shut to the temple. So nobody could go worship. False worship, neglected worship, and now the grandson hates God. Closes the doors and worships false gods. Say, what about the great-grandkids? Well, you can read about them in chapter 28, verse 3. It says he took his kids and he offered them on the fire to the false gods. He burned them up, sacrificed them to these gods. Pride leads to false worship, neglected worship, worshiping idolatry and hating God, and then you've got these great-grandkids sacrificed to idols. You say, I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anybody else. Let me tell you something. Sin always hurts somebody else. There is no such thing as sinning in solo. And if it doesn't have immediate ramifications in your life, it will have ramifications in the lives of your kids. But having said that, there's a positive side to this principle because after saying what he did in verse 5 about the third and the fourth generations and the the iniquity falling on them, God says this in verse 6, but I show loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. What's that say? You can break the chain. You may look back on your generations behind you and there's been false worship and there's been other things going on there that you're not proud of. You can break the chain in that situation. And what's exciting is when you go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 28, you find there was a great-grandchild who didn't get sacrificed. His name was Hezekiah. 
and he became king. And guess what he did? He went back and repaired the doors of the temple and opened them up and did right in the sight of the Lord. He broke the chain in his family. And you can do the same thing. I love what it says about Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now it's in you. You want to pass something down to your kids? Pass down faith. You want your kids to love the Lord? Teach them how to worship. And they're not going to get that from a book. They're going to get that from you modeling it in your life. The best thing you can give your children is not a college education. The best thing you can give your kids is not a nice inheritance. The best thing you can give your kids is not a nutritious meal. The best thing you can do for your children is teach them how to worship. By example. And then the final question. How should you? How do, how do you do this right? I mean... God is an invisible God. How do we worship Him if we don't have any images, anything to work with that we can see? When I was 20, I rebelled against uh, my family, against the Lord. I didn't know the Lord. I took off and went out to Denver, Colorado. I guess I thought God was isolated in Cape Girardeau, and if I could get out there, I'd get away from Him. Uh, He found me out there. Some of you knew my dad. Um, I rebelled against my dad, but the one thing I struggled with with my dad was that I knew that he loved the Lord. And I knew that he worshipped the Lord continually. And that wasn't phony. And I remember wondering, how do you love somebody you've never seen? How can he love the Lord that much and he's never seen him? And the Lord met me out in Denver, Colorado. And I discovered that you can love somebody you've never seen, but you can't love somebody you don't know. How do we get to know the God that is invisible? He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And he walked on this earth, and when Philip said, show us the Father, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or as Paul said in First Corinthians, Colossians 1.15, he said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He came down to become the image, the mediator, the go-between, the one who would die in our place and establish that relationship, the one who would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We don't need any other image. We need Jesus Christ.
And if you don't have a relationship with him today, I beg with you, beg with you today, beg you today to come to faith in Jesus Christ, to come to know him. And when you know him, he will take his truth and he will write it on your heart. He'll give you a new heart, new relationship, new desires. Change the price tags on everything in your life and give you that desire to say lovingly, I want to follow the Lord because I love him with all my heart. As we close today, I would ask you to just let the Lord examine your heart and be honest with him about the idols that may have crept in there that you've allowed to take the place that he alone deserves. Let's be real with him today and then walk in truth as we leave this place.